Well, good morning to all. We are going to be um, concluding our series on Titus and concluding what we started in February, um, three series in a row on the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And so today is the last message we'll be bringing from that. Next week will be a Thanksgiving message, and then we'll be proceeding into Advent. Um, When we planned earlier in this year to do these pastoral epistles back to back to back, uh, we wanted to do this so that you could contemplate on the Word of God what our purpose is as believers in Jesus Christ. What our purpose is. And that is to make immature disciples. That's what these three uh, epistles that Paul penned, two to Timothy and one to Titus, really at its core is. That is, that is the message. And so I hope you have uh, been learning and you can go back and listen to the messages as you have need of it. First Timothy taught us about the church and how we are to behave as the people of God. That we are the pillar and the buttress of truth. We are to proclaim the truth and we are entrusted with the truth. And then 2 Timothy, when we went through that particular epistle, it was a study in discipleship. And we learned through analogy that it's like a race, like a relay race. And Paul was passing the gospel baton from himself to Timothy. And that we are to take that and we are to preach the word. We are to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And then in Titus, we have this beloved short epistle. And Pastor Jake was talking about this last week, that the grace of God appeared. And because that grace of God has appeared and we have salvation in Jesus Christ, that we are to be godly and we are to do good works. So I've entitled this final message in Titus, Grace, Godliness, and Good Works. Grace, Godliness, and Good Works. Now, that is the way God works in His economy. Grace is always first. A result of His grace towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ, godliness ensues. We become godly. We are set apart immediately when we're justified by faith in Christ. But we continue to grow in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. This is making and maturing disciples. And then good works come as a result of that, of being saved, living godly, and then we do good works. It's not, we, we don't receive salvation because we do good works. It's not the opposite. But Paul in this passage is going to mix things up a little bit. We're going to talk about godliness first, then we're going to talk about grace, and then we're going to talk about good works. Well, as you've been following along in this study, you will know that Titus is on the island of Crete. It's the largest of the Greek isles. It's off to the south of Greece. And it wasn't a very good place to live. You saw in the actual text that Cretans are liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. But Polybius is a historian who captured 
the history of Crete. He adds another layer to this dimension of being just liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons as if that's not enough already. He said they were insubordinate. They were insurrectionists. They were murderers. This is a pagan culture, an island of city-states. And we look at the Old Testament or the New Testament, such as Crete here, and we go, man, they were bad people living in a pagan world. But I don't know that I have to point out to you that we're no different. Read the newspaper. Listen to the news. Listen to corruption in government. Listen to human trafficking. Listen, addictions, murder, abuse of every kind, bigotry, wars and rumors of wars. We live in, in a country, in a world that's really no different than Crete. We too have aspects about us that we're liars. We're lazy gluttons. We can be beastly, like, live like animals. And if we're honest, we know we're insubordinate as well. So we have this world that we live in. So as Francis Schaeffer would say, how are we to live? Now what? And Paul will pick that up. William Bennett, or Bill Bennett, has written a couple of books, The Moral Compass and one on virtue. The Moral Compass is a collection of short stories for a journey in life. In his final chapter, he asks some pointed questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What should I do? What is my destiny? And what does it all mean? Those are questions not just for Christians. Those are questions for everyone in the world. So where does the answer lie to these questions? The world would have you believe that you should follow the direction of Socrates. You know him, the Greek philosopher. He said, to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. We hear today, be true to yourself. What is true to you is all that matters. The Bible warns us against this. The Proverbs say this in 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems right unto man, but its end is the way of death. Socrates doesn't give good advice. Proverbs goes on to say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the answers to the questions that Bill Bennett asks, the answers in the world, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my destiny? Can be found in Scripture alone. Any other way to answer those questions will lead you to death. And so we look to this epistle this morning to find answers to these questions. Paul is masterful when it comes to pinning epistles that talk about doctrine, teaching, and duty, practice, or faith and practice, or we'll say the indicative, the objective truth, 
and the imperative what we're to do. And he's masterful at that, and he will pen that out for us this morning. This epistle to Titus has everything to do with the grace of God, godliness, and good works. And in these three chapters of this short epistle, he does something fabulous. He breaks it up into segments. Chapter 1 is really about practicing the faith or what we believe in the church. And chapter 2 has to do with the home. And third, now we look at the way we are to respond in the world. Let me pray for us and we will get on to this text this morning. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that it is everything that we need for faith and practice, everything that we need for godliness. And so we do ask, Holy Spirit, that you will make this word known to us, illuminate our minds and our hearts, and implant the word within us that we might not only believe it, but we will live it out, that we will put it into practice that our godliness would reflect Christ Jesus to the world around us and that we would be your workmanship created to do the good works that you ordained that we would walk in. In Christ's name, amen. So four points this morning out of this text. Number one, remember a reminder of how to live in the world. How to live in the world. Two, remember what you once were. Remember what you once were. Three, remember who you are now. And then reminder of what we do now. Reminder of what we do now. Last week, Pastor Jake brought forth a a message given to us um, that concluded with the end of chapter 2. But verse 15 in chapter 2 is actually a precursor into this particular text. It ended with this statement in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. The things he was supposed to declare and exhort was the gospel of Jesus Christ to the church at Crete. And these were home churches. And so we see in this then, uh, first of all, a reminder of how we're to live in the world. And we see in in these first two verses of the text, we see that we're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We're to be obedient. We're to be ready for every good work. We're to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So what is Paul doing here? I told you that the island of Crete pagan, they were insubordinate and they were insurrectionists. They pushed back with every single piece that came out of the government, out of the authority. There was no respect or honor for authority in Crete. Brothers and sisters, let us not judge too quickly because we do the same thing. Watch the presidential debates. It's, it's a travesty. I haven't watched them. 
I've seen clips. What Paul wants us to do here is to project godliness to the world around us. And the first thing that he says is there's two areas, two important areas for you to be submissive. One is to rulers and the other is in relationships. So everyone in society is included in this. But first he starts with rulers and authorities, the government. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that we are to be submissive to the government, that God has ordained that they would be over us. And you go, Jeff, what what about when they do something that's against Scripture? Well, that is the exception. But the rule is, is that we follow that. Well, what does that look like? Well, obey traffic laws. Pay your taxes. Do the things that they say to do. Divide your trash if you need to. Trash in one bin, recycle in another. It doesn't matter what you think about those things. We are to be law-abiding citizens. We are to obey authority. But here's what Paul knows. This is what God wants us to know. If we can't obey the authority publicly, civil authority, how do we honor the authority within the church? If you don't practice the one, you're not going to practice the other. There is no separation. If your regular practice is to push back against the authorities that are in the world on a regular basis or the authorities at your work, I don't want to do that. It ingrains within you. That becomes your modus operandi. You want to push back. You want your will be done. We need to submit to authority. This idea of submission here is interesting. It, the, the word in the Greek is, is hupotasso. There's two words for submission. Hupotasso in the Greek and hupokuo. Hupotasso is a willingness to come up under for the good. Hupokuo is what your children are to do. They are to obey you as parents regardless. But the giftings that we've been given, regardless of what they are, we are to submit those gifts for a higher purpose. Anyone remember Neil Gorsh? Neil Gorsh. He is a Supreme Court justice. You don't hear a whole lot about him. Supreme Court justices are nominated by a president and they're put before uh, the House and the Senate. And they go through intense, intense interviews. Neil Gorsh's process was so short because he was a man of integrity. You look at Titus and it talks about what godliness is. It talks about godliness as someone who is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, They're sound in faith. They're sound in love. They're sound in steadfastness. Sound in speech. They are upright. Those are things, regardless of whether Neil Gorsh is a believer or not, that's what he projected all the time. People saw him and he was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. He 
projected godliness, whether or not he's a believer, I don't know. I didn't look it up this week. But his integrity, his dignity, his manner of decorum, and how he projected himself was so above reproach that he was easily ushered in to be a Supreme Court justice. And you still, to this day, don't hear a lot from him. He's not an activist. He simply looks to serve and follow the law of the land. That's what Paul is asking us to do. If you do that, you are going to project a Christ-likeness because of God's Word to you to do this very thing. So we need to do that. We need to submit to rulers and authorities. We need to be obedient. People will notice this. And then he says to be ready for every good work. He sandwiches that within our our submissiveness to rulers, but then our responsibility in our relationships to those around us. He wants us to be good neighbors. Paul asks us to be good civil citizens and to be good neighbors. And you look at this list and you, if you think about it, if you contemplate it, if you're honest, you go, man, I can't do that. It, it, it says, speak evil of no one. No one. Not a single person. Ask yourself, can you do that? I can't. Avoid quarreling. This is avoid conflicts. Avoid arguments that lead you to actions that are unbecoming of a Christian. We do that. But it's the grace of God that Paul is about to bring into this letter that says, no, Jeff, no Christian, you can't not speak evil of no one, and you can't avoid quarreling. But by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God that dwells in you, you can. You can. It's all of grace. And so Paul says, all right, here's a reminder how we want to live in the world. We want to be submissive. We want to be obedient. And we want our decorum to be noticed by all people. We want people to think that we are a good person. Not that that's what counts in the scheme of things, but we represent Christ to the world. We have to do it in every aspect of our lives. I talked about these three epistles and I said, hey, this this is really about what is our purpose? 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And when you think about purpose a lot of us will start to segment our lives. We'll say we have a spiritual purpose over here, and over here we have a human purpose. I'll put it in those terms. Human purpose. I want to excel in my job. I want to be a good husband. I I want to have good financial um, independence. I want to participate in these things over here. And as if these priorities and the priorities of the church 
in that we love God and we love others because we are going to follow Christ and we are going to do what He asks us to do and we are going to make disciples and we are going to mature disciples because that is the goal that He is working toward. The end that Christ is working toward is to gather all these people of every nation, tribe, and tongue and to bring them in, usher them in to worship the triune God throughout all eternity. And yet we'll say, well, that's one priority over here, and then there's all these priorities over here. Well, can I tell you that God's priority trumps yours? That the gospel is not to be neglected in any aspect of your life. Not in your political views, not in the way you are an employee or an employer, not in the way you parent, not in the way your marriage relationship is conducted, not the way you treat your neighbors in your neighborhood, not the way you think or speak towards the government. All those come under God's gospel purpose. How many times have you looked at Facebook or you looked at some other social media and someone goes off? What do you think of that person? What do you think of them? They have just tainted everything else that they're about to say or everything that they stand for. They may not be like that all the time, but in your eyes, they are. So what are you supposed to represent? What am I supposed to represent? Who am I supposed to look like? Who am I supposed to live like? Jesus, if I am doing things that don't measure up, it's not just a bad reflection on myself, on my wife, on my kids, my family, and everything else. It is a reflection on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're wanting to share the gospel, the thought that comes to mind for those you're going to share with, you hypocrite. That's a hard pill to swallow. So Paul is wanting us to see that our submissiveness to be a good citizen, to be a good neighbor, matters all the time. And so he said there's two motivations on why to be godly. And those two motivations is what you once were and what God has done. That's where he goes with the text. Remember what you once were. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2 better than anywhere else. But here he says it this way. He says, you were once foolish. You were disobedient. You were led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days with malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. He essentially does three categories here. He talks about what we once were, the evils in our minds, the evils of our pursuits, and the evils of our heart, of our minds. We're foolish. We look to everything else but the Word of God to direct us on how we are to live. We're foolish. We're disobedient. That means we we cannot be persuaded. We're uncompliant. 
and were led astray. We're deceived. That's what that word means. We, we think that our own way is the way to happiness. We, we think that we know best. Leave me alone. I am the captain of my soul. And yet, tragically, person after person that lives that way comes to ruin. So these are the evils of the minds, the thoughts that we have that make us think that we know best. We are a God unto ourselves. And then there's evil pursuits, passions, and pleasures. Look at the world. You see it all the time. There's a greed for money. There's a greed for fame. There's a greed for power. And then there is the pleasures. The lusts of the flesh, drunkenness, addictions, you name it. Put it in there. Those are the evil pursuits. So our thoughts are evil. That's where we once were. Our pursuits are evil. And then just the very evils of the heart. Jesus said it's not what goes into the man that defiles man. It's what comes out of the heart. Malice and envy and hate. You see that every day, don't you? In the world around you? You can go to social media. You can watch the news there as well. Oh, you believe that? And then the anger boils up. And you want to take it out on them. These are what we once were. These are what we're tempted to go back to. These are the things that we have to, on a regular basis, put those sins to death. This is why it's important that we rise up in the morning, that we look to the Word, that we hear from God's Word and apply it to our lives and then have a moment of confession like we did today so that we can go out and live as godly people in the world, as good citizens and good neighbors. That's the way to start. Paul wants to remind you what you once were. We cannot forget that. Remembering who we once were gives us a different perspective of the people that are around us. Instead of wanting to be angry and hate and envy those people, which is the temptation for us, we see them the way Christ saw us. He put away those things. He put away our anger, our malice, our evil intentions, our passions. And then he says, remember who you are now. Hallelujah. He now talks about grace. He's talked about godliness and the need for it. You represent Christ to the world. Live it, brothers. Live it, sisters. But he says, I want you to remember how you got to where you are. And this is the gospel. This particular passage here, many think it was a hymn, a song. We've used it as a creed, an affirmation of faith, and it is fittingly so. It says, who you are now all began with God's initiative divine initiative 
This is where you once were, but God here. His goodness. His loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. That word for loving kindness is where we get the word philanthropy. Benevolence. Goodness. I was reading this week about Andrew Carnegie, one of the big four. He had Carnegie Steel. He did Carnegie Hall. He did a lot. But he was known more, not for his wealth, but for his philanthropy. He sold Carnegie Steel for $450 million. It's about $6 billion today. Approximately $6 billion today. He wrote a paper on the gospel of philanthropy. Do you know of that proceed, that $450 million, that would be $6 million today, over 90% of it he gave away. Paul wants us to see here, God is no Andrew Carnegie. He is so much further above than that. The loving kindness of God to forgive your sins and my sins and a world of people's sins. That is loving kindness that abounds more and more and more. And it never stops. It's not a one-time deal. It's, It's not like your baptism where you get a little bit of water. When you're baptized. No, it's, it's like being underneath Niagara Falls. And oceans and oceans and waves and waves of His loving kindness come upon you. That's the loving kindness of God. And out of that loving kindness, out of that goodness of God, it says this, He saved us. He saved us. Not because of works done in our own righteousness. There is nothing in our hands we bring. Only to the cross we cling. You couldn't do enough good works for all eternity. What you cannot do, God did. He took the initiative, divine initiative, and He saved us. What was His divine motive? His mercy. It says, according to His own mercy. In Exodus, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And you know the story if you know Exodus. He made the time and the place. He stuck Moses in the cleft of the rock and he covered him with his hand and he passed by. And in that message that's given by God, it concludes with, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's because God took the initiative to save you because of his mercy. He was help for you, the helpless. But He does more. So we see His divine initiative. We see His divine motive. 
What was the divine means? What were the divine means? It says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Regeneration. The new birth. The new life. That precedes faith. Ezekiel chapter 36 is so beautiful in, in that prophecy in the past of what God is going to do. It says, I'm going to sprinkle you with water. I'm going to wash you clean. I am going to remove your heart of stone, meaning it will not receive anything, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a heart like a beating heart, a living heart, and I'm going to write my law upon it. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to renew us, to make us alive. And with that, the gift of faith comes as well. And we appropriate that. It is poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus. I want you to see that God saves us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is a triune act of God. And it is all based on His mercy and His means what is the divine result this is the beauty of grace the divine result is we are justified by his grace we are declared to be righteous there's nothing righteous about us brothers and sisters nothing at all it's all the righteousness of christ from beginning to end and it is all of grace Jesus came, and we're going to be talking about the incarnation here for Advent. But Pastor Jake talked about this last week. His appearing, He came, He lived the life perfectly the way you and I cannot. And then He went to the cross and He died in our place. The penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. But He set us free. He forgave us our iniquities, our trespasses, our sins, you, whenever, however you want to name it. He did it. And then there was the great exchange that took place. He said, I'm going to take your sin, sinner, and I'm going to give you my righteousness. That's half of the result. We are declared righteous before God. And then to the world. But wait, there's more. You are now an heir. Everything that's Christ's is yours as well. You are fellow heirs with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. So remember who you are, Christian. You're a forgiven sinner. By His mercy and by His grace, you are declared righteous. You are an heir of His kingdom. And you will have eternal life. So doesn't that motivate you to want to live godly in the world? Don't you see that and go, look what he's done. If you've gone to some place, a department store or bought online, it doesn't matter, the clothing. And you put on brand new clothing and you look good. And you want to go out and go, look at me. 
Brothers and sisters, you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. There is not a garment in the world, it could be made out of gold, that doesn't look like that. We have His righteousness. We need to live lives that show that righteousness. And that comes through godly behavior. Not that we can do it on our own, but we do it through the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit that's within us. That's who we are now. So how then are we to live? We're to do good works. We're to do good works. What are good works? I'm going to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon to talk about good works here. Many of these things that I'm about to mention are not exclusive, are not set apart from the gospel. That good works and the gospel go together. They're hand in glove all the way through. Spurgeon says this, works of charity, works of kindness and benevolence, works of piety, reverence, and holiness. These are the works that comply with the Ten Commandments. Okay, wait a minute, that's the law. We're, we're not under the law. No, but if you take the Ten Commandments, you take the first four, it tells us how we love God. If you take the last six, it tells us how we love our neighbor. It tells us how to be obedient to governments. It tells us how to live. And by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, we can keep those commands. There's works of obedience. Jesus says in John's Gospel, He who loves me will keep my commandments. The good works that we do, God bids us, but also enables us. Common actions of everyday life. We don't do them for merit, but we do them out of gratitude for what He has done for us. We consider the grace of God that's been bestowed upon us. And out of gratitude, we want to serve Him. We want to love Him. And we want to love others. This precept is important. It has a specific motive that when we do these good works with His Word, word and deed, we can be used by Him to save sinners. Encourage believers. These are the things that he says at the conclusion of his letter are excellent. They're profitable. They're good. Unfortunately, we far too often neglect this precept. We need to be reminded. We need to remember. We need to be reminded how to conduct ourselves in society and in relationships. We need to remember who we once were. We need to remember who we are now and be reminded to do good works, to encourage one another to do good works. I was reading this week a short story. I talked about William Bennett earlier, Bill Bennett. And the short story is about three questions. It's written by a man named Leo Tolstoy. It's a story about a, a king. 
And the king desperately wanted to do what was right. And he believed that he could have, if he had the answer to three questions, that he could be a great king. His three questions, when is it the right time? Who are the right people? And what is the most important thing for a king? What is the right time for the king? What is the right people for the king? And what is the most important thing? The king sought these answers, and as he began to ask the wise people around him and others, for everyone he talked to, he got a different answer. He heard about a hermit that lived in a faraway land, was renowned for his wisdom. And so he decided that he would take his bodyguards and he would make the journey. He would go to see this hermit and see what his answers to these questions would be. He got outside of the little village where the hermit lived. He changed his clothes. He wanted to be seen as an ordinary person. He left his bodyguards and he went to the hermit's little hut. He was outside, he was digging in a garden. He had a spade, a little shovel. And he's digging and he's overturning. And the king goes up to their, him in common clothing. And, and he says, I have heard about your wisdom. I have, I've heard that you can give good counsel. He says, I have three questions. How can I know when it's the right time? How can I know the right people to associate with? And what is the most important thing that needs to be done? The hermit just kept digging. Didn't answer the questions. He was befuddled, the king was. But he went ahead and he waited for a moment and then he asked again and the hermit didn't answer. After about an hour, he thought, okay, I'm going to take the shovel out of his hands. He goes, here, let me, let me take that. Let me give you a break. And he starts digging. And after a little while, he asks the question again. Still no answer. Then there's a commotion, and they're interrupted. And a man is running out of the woods and running towards where they are. He has his hand on his side, and he's clutching it. And there's blood that's coming out. The hermit says, we need to see what's going on here. And so the hermit and the king, they meet this man. And they take off his shirt and they see, yes, he's wounded, bleeding profusely. The king knows a little something about medical attention and he puts bandages on and those get soaked with blood. He puts more bandages on and keeps going over and over and over, finally gets the bleeding to stop. After a day of digging and a day of medical attention, the man is, is, put, is put to sleep and the king falls asleep on the threshold. He can't even make it to the bed. In the morning, he wakes. And the man who he had treated last night, they make eye contact. They're laying close proximity. The man says to the king, forgive me says, forgive me. I don't even know you. He goes, oh yes. You know me. I'm your enemy. You killed my brother. You took his property. Kingdom war. And he says, but you have saved my life. And if I continue to mend... This is my pledge that I will serve you all the days of my life. 
if you forgive me. And the king forgave him. Now the king's business still hadn't been taken care of. And he says to the hermit one more time, he goes, you know what, I've got those three questions. Are you going to answer my three questions? When is the right time? Who are the right people? And what's the most important thing? He goes, if you're not going to answer, I'm just going to go home. The hermit says, you've already been answered. He says, when you were with me, you took the shovel and you began to dig. And because you began to dig means you didn't leave. That man was stabbed by your bodyguards. They were trying to protect you. Had you gone back, that might have been you. You might have been killed. It was the right time for you to be with me. I was the right man. You then made me the most important thing by taking on my task, doing a good work for me. The right time was to be with me. It saved your life. The right person to be with was me. And you did a good work for me. Now, why do I tell you that? This whole story is because the gospel tells us that the right time to share the gospel is now. It's not later today. It is not tomorrow. It is not next week. The right time is now. Who is the right person? The one that's in front of you. The one that's beside you. The one that's behind you. Whomever you are in contact with. That is the right person. And what is the most important thing? The good news of Jesus Christ to be shared. That's our purpose. That's our pleasure. That should be our passion. So there's three questions that I've answered for each of us. The right time is now, since of urgency to share the gospel. The right person is the people that God has put you in contact with. And the most important thing is to share that good news. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace towards us. You saved us, not from, because of our own works, but because of your grace and because of your mercy. You have made us Christ-like. Oh Lord, would you, by your spirit and by your power and by your grace, cause us to live godly lives that reflect yours, that mirror yours to the world around us. Would you help us to see that by submitting to uh, ruling authorities, by being good neighbors, that that is the right thing to do. It is the right time. It is in front of the right people. And it is the importance of sharing the gospel. Those are the good works that we are to be about. Help us to do that, we pray, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.